If this is your first Sunday here, uh, well, welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. Uh, We just started a new series on the Gospel of John last week. Uh, I would love for you to catch up with the sermon from last week. You can uh, go on our website, listen to the sermon. You can download the podcast. Um, It's not the greatest sermon ever preached on John 1, the first five verses, but that's okay. Um, I'm not trying to promote my preaching. I just want you to be on track with what our church is doing, and the first five verses of John are just so important. Uh, You don't have to listen to my sermon on it. Just listen to some Bible-believing pastor on John 1, 1 through 5, and uh, then dive in with us uh, this fall uh, in the Gospel of John. There's nothing like this book. So with that in mind, Christian, hear the word of the Lord. This is John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. Christian, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. And friends, remember this, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of body and soul and of joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And before it, all are naked and exposed before him whom we must give an account. Christian, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you would, grab your seat. Keep John open in front of you in the lap that you've got. We're looking at John chapter 1. As we dive into this uh, finishing of the prologue, if you look in your lap, there's three simple paragraphs we're going to be looking at. Verses 6, 7, and 8. That's the first paragraph, if you'll notice. And then starting in verse 9 through 13, there's the next little paragraph. And then 14 through 18 is the last. Uh, But before we dive into this passage, I do have just a quick question for you to think about. And it is kind of a deep question, uh, so I need you to think a little, uh, a little more deeply than maybe you're prepared to right now. Uh, but friends, do you think belief is possible today? I mean, think about the world you live in Monday through Friday. Uh, the world that you and I inhabit. It's 2019, you know, we live in Oregon. Uh, do you think belief is even possible today? Well, let me give you some stats. Uh, This was from an article The Atlantic Magazine published about a year ago, and they were trying to figure out why there has been such a loss in people's trust. And a a marketing firm did a lot of research on why people have lost trust in almost everything. 
And Edelman, this marketing firm, asked people, they said, Americans, um, do you trust the government to do the right thing? What percentage of Americans do you think responded with, yes, I trust the government to do the right thing? Anybody want to take a guess? It was a third of all Americans, which is astonishing, right? Isn't that hard to believe? Makes me doubt this survey. Not that we have trust issues. Two-thirds of Americans, we don't trust the government. Gallup poll uh, did research on how Americans viewed religious leaders. And 60% of Americans do not believe clergy have high ethical standards. Um, That's actually, I can't believe 40% of people trust us. I know too many pastors to give them that high of a mark. What percentage of Americans trust the media? Surprisingly, it's still at 42%. But that's down from a year ago in 2017 when they did this. A year ago, it was at 47. So they lost 5% in about 12 months. Um, in fact, almost every sector of life that you could think of, people distrust. People distrust doctors in a new way. They distrust medical advice. They distrust pharmacies. They distrust NGOs, things like charities. Those non-government organizations that do good around the world, we don't trust them anymore. We don't trust business leaders. We don't trust the church. Why would we? I mean, how many times can we read of child abuse in the religious community and not lose faith in it? Uh, So friends, let me ask you a very deep philosophical question again. (laughs) Is belief possible today? We have some trust issues. You know, Richard Edelman, the head of the firm, was interviewed by The Atlantic, and he went on and he said this. He said, this is the first time that a massive drop in trust has been linked not to a pressing economic issue or catastrophe. In fact, it's the ultimate irony that it's happening at a time of prosperity with the stock market and unemployment rates at record highs. Uh, But friends, if you think we struggle with trust issues today, uh, humanity has always struggled with trust issues. You know why? Because we live in a world that is broken and full of sinners. (laughs) Why don't we trust people in authority? Because we have experienced people in authority. (laughs) No amen on that? Man, wow, goodness gracious. Maybe you guys don't have any of these trust issues that normal people like me have. I applaud you. Thank you that you don't have trust issues. That's great. But for us people who struggle with trust issues, who struggle with belief, um, the gospel of John is going to be very difficult for us because explicitly right out of the get-go, the gospel of John is telling us that he is writing so that we would believe something. And he says it's not just a person, it's not just a movement, it's not just this idea of community. We are supposed to actually really unironically believe in somebody. And the person we're supposed to believe is Jesus Christ. And verses 1 through 5 make a really compelling argument for why you should believe Jesus. And the argument goes like this. Ever since time began, God was existing And the trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in fellowship. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that is God the Son. 
And the Word was with God the Father. And the Word was God. You see, Jesus isn't just a great moral teacher. In fact, as I made the argument last week, he's kind of a weird moral teacher, if that's what you think of him as. Right? He says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. That's very different than Tony Robbins telling you he can help you have a good life. Tony Robbins doesn't get up and say, I am life itself. And unless you believe and put your faith in me, you'll never have life. It's a different category of talking. Jesus comes along because he is God himself. Because he has made everything that you see. He's made your lungs and your minds and even your toes for his glory. He's made the world that you live in. And only he has the authority to tell us what to do. You got trust issues, buddy? Get in line. But you know who is worth trusting? Unironically, as emphatically as John can make the case, Jesus is worth trusting. And he's going to give you some reasons. Look at verse 6. The first reason he gives you is he ties it to this man named John. Look at verse 6. There was a man, that word was right there isn't really was, it's became or was created or appeared. There appeared, right? A man sent from God whose name was John. And right off the bat, I need to tell you, this is John the Baptist. If you just keep reading the rest of the chapter, that becomes obvious. But this may make you struggle. Wait a second, who who is this John? Because you may also notice at the top of your page right here, this is the gospel, the good news according to whom? John. So did John the Baptist write this epistle? No. The reason he doesn't call him John the Baptist is because the author... John the Apostle chooses never to name himself by name. All throughout the gospel, what we see is the apostles, the 12 apostles are hanging around, and he names almost every apostle by name and gives us really interesting stories about all of the apostles. But one really prominent apostle never gets mentioned, John, one of the inner three. And instead, what happens throughout John is the author refers to him as the apostle whom Jesus loved the disciple Jesus loved. And at the very end of the Gospel of John, he tells us the disciple that Jesus loved, well, I'm the one who has written this to you. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. So what we're seeing here is this Gospel that you have in your hand in front of you comes directly from the Apostle John. And there's a lot of reasons why we should believe that this is John. One argument just comes from church history. John, the apostle, had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp is awesome. He has a famous story. And Polycarp's disciple was a man named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus says, hey, when I was being discipled by Polycarp, he was John's own apostle. And guess what? This is his gospel. But we don't just tie it to church history. We also tie it to the embedded details that are all throughout the gospel of John. All kind of fascinating things happen for why we should believe this is the apostle John. One of the reasons why we believe it's the apostle is because it's clear that this guy is Jewish. He's steeped in the Old Testament. In fact, you can read this whole section of verses 1 through 18, and it's incredible how many times he's echoing Exodus 33, Exodus 34, uh, Isaiah 40, um, he's, uh, Malachi 4. He's constantly steeping himself and quoting and calling back to the Old Testament. So he's clearly not a Gentile because he knew the Old Testament in and out. The other funny thing is John is full of these weird details that don't really help the story, and they're not really that important. I mean, they're cute and they're nice, but they're not really that important. 
Like one of the things that John says is he says, remember that boy who helped us feed the 5,000 in the miraculous feeding? He says, yeah, it was barley bread. He adds that detail because he was there. And buddy, you better believe if you saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with a little stick of barley, you would never eat barley ever again. It's seared into his memory, barley. Every time he ate it, he was like, that was crazy. (laughs) He also alone tells us that Judas' father is a man named Iscariot. Because he wants people to be sure not to confuse Judas Iscariot with the other Judas, who was an apostle. He also alone tells us it was palm leaves at the triumphal entry. Why was that important? It's not. But those are the little details that only an eyewitness would make a point to bring up. You see, John is an eyewitness to these things. And you see, the reason I bring this up, those aren't just fun details. Uh, The reason I'm bringing this up is because this is all about the Bible's argument for why you should believe in Jesus. What you and I have in our laps and in front of us is the testimony of the apostles, guys who were with Jesus night in and night out. And Jesus is the truth. He is the way. And if you devoted your life to Jesus and you never saw Jesus lie, who, even though he could have gotten out of the cross, didn't do it, who suffered for the truth, who said he was truth itself. Why would you lie to people about him? And also, how does John end up living? He ends up dying on an island all by himself. What motivation would John have to lie to you? See, this is part of why we believe the Bible. Also, notice that the apostle, who's rightly explaining Jesus to us as an eyewitness to what Jesus did, He says, the reason we know to trust Jesus is because John the Baptist told us. Look at verse 6 and 7 and 8. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You see, so why is it important? Is this this some weird digression? Why are we talking about John the Baptist? Anybody care about John the Baptist? We may think no, but John the Baptist is incredibly important. All four gospel writers make a point to bring up John the Baptist. And the reason why is because John the Baptist is prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 says there's going to come a day that God promises to say comfort, comfort my people. I will bind up your wounds and you'll know that I have come because a voice will cry out in the wilderness. Behold, prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the way for our God because God himself is going to come into our midst. And you can even flip to the very last sentences of the Old Testament. I know no one here has probably ever cared to read Malachi. Maybe you have. I'm proud of you if that's true. But you may have never read Malachi. They're the last words ever written in the Old Testament. These are written 400 years before Jesus was ever alive. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. This is, you can Google it. Malachi wrote 400 years before Jesus was alive. And Malachi ends the Old Testament with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that's how the Old Testament ends. It's saying there's going to come somebody many, many years later. Somebody's going to enter our world 
And he is going to declare the day that Yahweh, God himself, enters our midst. And he is going to prepare the way for him. You see what John is saying, John the Apostle is saying. You see, John the Baptist is showing us that we can trust the Bible. The Bible said it was going to happen, and it did. And that's part of why you should believe the Bible. You know, when people say, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. It's like, I get what you're saying, but you're misunderstanding what the Bible is. Yes, the Bible is a book that gets bound up like this, right? But it is more profoundly 66 books written almost over a thousand-year period that all reveal who God is. So when Malachi writes in 450 B.C., that Elijah's going to come, and then Elijah, metaphorically, right, the, the prophet, comes. Now, John didn't write Malachi. <laughs> Malachi didn't write John. It's not one author just saying it's all the same thing. It's multiple people testifying to the reality and the truth that God is speaking to us through his word. See, that's what John has come to do. And notice how clear it is that this testimony, this witness of John the Baptist is compared to Jesus. Like look at verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. But then down in verse 6, it says, there became, there was sent, there appeared a man. Right? Jesus has always existed. God the Son has forever been here. John's just a dude. He's a great dude. He's probably better than anybody, but he's just a man. And he will even say that himself. Listen to what he says in verse 7. John came not as the light, but as a witness to the light. John's whole point is, I'm here to prepare the way, not for myself, not for my ministry, not for my book deal, not for my television deal. I am here to make much of Jesus. You know, if you think about it, what this means for us is that God chooses God, the, the God that created you. God uses regular, normal people to point us to Jesus. I know, like last week, I mentioned that I came to faith by reading the Gospel of John by myself and not, you know, listening to anybody else. Uh, but friends, you better believe I didn't stay alone as a Christian. You know, God didn't save a bunch of individual people to live individual lives and never open up their garage or their homes. He saved a people. And if you have come to know and to believe in Jesus, I can guarantee you one thing. Some other Christian has loved you and discipled you and pointed you to Jesus. And maybe they were really bad at it and kind of clumsy at it, but they pointed you to Jesus. Every one of us, the book of Ephesians will say, every one of us has a portion of grace, a special little piece of the pie of God's grace that's unique to us. And it's all of the spiritual mentors and pastors who have spoken and shaped us. You see, John was a witness and a testimony saying, Jesus is the light. You've got to know him. And friends, you may have never met John the Baptist in person, but I can guarantee you, you've had somebody in your life shape and point you to Jesus. If that's true, okay, I'm going to speak to the Christians in the room. If that's true of you, if you have received that kind of testimony encouragement, uh, Christian, are you that kind of testimony? Are you a witness for Jesus? I mean, what do you talk about when you get online? Does that testify to the grace of God? 
The last time you were really, really mad, were you mad about the right things? If somebody went through what you looked at on the internet over the last week, would that testify to the greatness and the holiness of God? Um, I know it's an old preacher saying, but man, does it still preach? You know, you know why the Dead Sea in Israel is dead? Anybody know why? It's because water flows into the Dead Sea and it never flows out. And nothing can live in that. A Christian, are you going to be the end of the line of God's grace? Are you? Are you going to just receive God's grace and never share it with anybody? Are you going to ruin your witness? I mean, I, you know, this may not be true for you, so don't take it if it's not true for you, but it is overwhelming the number of Christians in America who never share their faith with anybody. Um, I won't give you the statistics. I don't have it memorized, but it's well over 50%. But the overwhelming percentage of Christians never lead anybody to Jesus. We never talk about it. Christian, we have received a testimony. You know it's true. You've got God's word. His light has shined into your heart. You have the testimony of the Old Testament. You have the confirmation of John the Baptist. You have the witness of the Apostle John. And are we going to be the end of the line? You see, this is really, I know it's hard to hear in some ways, and uh, that's exactly where John's going next, right? Because he compares this message of Jesus to light shining. Look at verse 9. He says, the true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, because he's God, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. You see what John's getting at is knowing Jesus, coming face to face with God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Lord of everything, is like light shining into our lives. And uh, does he, has anyone ever... Um, you know, uh, stood in front of a mirror and then like turned on the really bright lights and been like, oh gosh, turn them off. Anyone here love the bathrooms in Starbucks? Has anyone noticed that? You walk in the bathroom at Starbucks and you're like, oh man, I'm like, oh, look good. And then you walk outside and you look really different. Anyone? No, no one is here. All right. You'll probably go to a bathroom at Starbucks a little differently next time now that I mention it. Light is great, right? Except Light is also kind of frustrating because what happens is as Jesus' light shines more and more into your life, areas of your life are going to get exposed that you don't necessarily want to be exposed. But Jesus says everything that's done in the dark will what? Be brought out into the light. And in fact, the reason that people, the world, right, fallen humanity, does not know Jesus, they don't want him, right, this whole section, yet the world didn't know him and they didn't receive him. Why is that? Well, John will say it's because their deeds are wicked and the light exposes them. You see, we have a hard time coming to Jesus because he has a lot of things he needs to fix in our lives. But the good news, the good news of the gospel, the reason we would come into the light is because unless we know Jesus, unless we come face to face with him, unless you give your life to him, 
and make him the, like the locus of control, the locus of gravity around which everything in your life spins around. Unless Jesus is that, you'll never be who you were meant to be. Um, you'll never become what you were meant to become. Um, you'll never know who God is because you won't accept him for who he is. But if you do come to know Jesus, God is not just going to remake you. He's going to make you into who you were always meant to be. And that's exactly what John is talking about. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, yes, some people are going to reject Jesus. They don't like the light. They don't want their world exposed. But to those who do believe him, who trust in Jesus, he gave them the right, the power, the authority to become children of God. And this kind of becoming a new person, um, what I love about this is we, we have to explain exactly what he means by that. So John goes on and he says, and I'm not talking about being raised in a religious family. Look what he says. He says, you are not made right with God because of the blood flowing through your veins. I remember John is Jewish and he's talking to the nation of Israel and he's telling Israelites, you are not right with God because you happen to have the right ethnicity. Everybody has to come to faith in the Messiah. In fact, remember when Jesus says, you must be born again? He says it in John 3, and he says it to Nicodemus, who was on the Sanhedrin in Israel. He's one of the most important Israelites in the nation of Israel. And he tells that guy, unless you're born again and you believe in me, you will not know God. You will not be who you were meant to be. You must be, me, be made new. Um, it doesn't come uh, through the blood flowing through your veins. You know, it's been said before, there are no second-generation Christians. And what they mean by that is your parents cannot believe on your behalf. You are not right with God just because you were raised in the church. This was the mistake of many of the Pharisees. In fact, John the Baptist, when he you know, kind of pokes him in the eyeball, he says, you think you're right with God because you're children of Abraham. John the Baptist turns around and says, God can make these rocks children of Abraham. Notice it's not just ethnic, but he says nobody becomes right with God through the will of their own flesh, right? Through the own will of being a good person. You know, some people will say, you know, when I die, I'm going to be okay because I'm a good person. The problem with that, of course, is that you're probably worse than you think. In fact, you are, and so am I. But also, the standard is not other people right? The standard by which God judges is not the average of all humanity. The standard is his holiness. And Jesus will say, if you think you're better than other people, you know, if you think you're a good person, actually you've committed pride, which is the worst sin. And in fact, the way you're made right with God is not by doing a bunch of religious things. In fact, it's believing in Jesus, Jesus will push the issue in John 6. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says a pretty shocking thing. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you find life, but it is the scriptures that testify of me, and you refuse to come to me. You see, friends, what Jesus and John are getting at is to be made right with God. You can't just rely on your religious heritage nor can you rely on your goodness or maybe how much you know about the Bible until you come to believe something about who Jesus is. You haven't been made new. And I love that little phrase, nor by the will of man. You know, 
Um, I know everybody's mama's been praying that you would come to faith, and most of you probably maybe have believing fathers, but your parents can't believe on your behalf. To become a child of God, you have got to decide whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. Um, I know that's hard, right? We live in an age where we want to hedge our bets, right? Remember all that trust issue stuff I was talking about? You know, you're like, well, maybe I can keep like one foot in the Jesus camp and then one foot in the other camp, and maybe he's wrong. Uh, But the problem with sitting on a fence is, have you ever actually sat on a fence? When people say that, I'm like, what world are you living in, buddy? I mean, you know that awful, I mean, beautiful fence they just put up on the street out that way as you leave our beautiful little town? You know when you're driving out of town and you look and see that chain link fence and you're just like, oh, our beautiful little town. I love that fence. It just adds to the ambiance of our community. Now, you know, imagine, do a thought experiment. How much would I have to pay you to climb up on that fence and sit on it? And how long do you think you could stand it? You know, after 30 minutes, you know, of sitting on that fence, you know, you better believe you'd just want to like, you know, throw yourself in the ocean, right? It'd be so painful, right? There's no money I could pay you to sit on that stupid fence, right? I mean, now imagine a wooden picket fence, right? It's terrible. Uh, and this is where Jesus really pushes each one of us. And I can't believe on your behalf. Your mama can't believe on your behalf. Your friends, your ethnicity, none of these things are going to help you. Jesus is going to say, am I who I am? Do you believe that I am the Messiah? Because if you do, you recognize that I am God, and everything in your life is now mine. How could you hold anything back? I mean, if, if Jesus is the Lord of everything, how could you hold back anything from him? He literally made everything. I mean, it doesn't even make logical sense, right? But if Jesus isn't God, if he's not Lord of everything, then why are you bothering about anything? You know? Go hang out with Nietzsche for a while and take over the world or something. But if Jesus is God, if he is telling you the truth, if he's worth believing, uh, friends, you will become a child of God. You will know God as a father that loves you. And a father that you can always trust. Uh, Many of us have a father wound. I don't know if you've heard of that, this idea that our fathers have all deeply hurt us. Uh, But friends, don't project your father wound onto God the Father. God the Father loves you. He sent his son to die in your place. And he says, I will bring you into my family and I will say, you are child. I will never cast you out. The image is of adoption. God the Father is going to adopt you into the family. And it's hard. I know it's hard to believe that God loves you that much. Um, I heard a story several years ago um, that sort of embodies the hard part about accepting love. And uh, a family adopted two twins uh, from kind of Eastern Europe. You know, maybe you've known people who have adopted children from Romania or places like that. And these two twins were adopted into a family, and uh, the parents just loved them so much. They set up this room for the twins. It was full of toys. They had their own beds. They put their names on the wall. They had this beautiful room, all of these toys. And for two weeks, the twins who had been adopted into this family, wouldn't play with anything, didn't touch a single toy. So the parents got very concerned and they sat down with the adopted children and they said, you know, do you not like your room? Do you want different toys? And the children told the parents, they said, we made a deal with each other that maybe if we don't break anything, you won't send us back. 
You see, friends, the image that the Bible uses of us is we are like hurt, broken, sinful children who are brought into the family of God, who are made new, who are given a new identity, and he ain't never sending us back. Amen. Amen. Because, you know why? Because we have seen his glory. Glory is his awesomeness. You know why Jesus is awesome and glorious? Is because he is full of grace and truth. He tells us the truth. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He's going to challenge our sin. The light shining in the darkness is not going to be fun all the time. And yet, grace upon grace, measure upon measure, he will give you his grace and mercy and love. And he will never cast you aside. And friends, once that story, once that truth of the gospel burrows its way into your heart and starts to heal all of the cracks in your heart, you become a new person. It's like you're born again. You have hope. You have peace. You have love. You're forgiving because you have been forgiven. And in an unironic way, you become who you were meant to be. See, this is the beauty of the Word entering our world. This is why the Word became flesh and lived among us. Just like God set up a tabernacle and a tent in the Old Testament and lived among his people, now that same God, the God of the Bible, has tabernacled and lived among us. And just like the Old Testament people saw his glory, his Shekinah glory, in his compassion and truth, now we see that in high definition. Jesus tabernacles among us, and we have seen his glory. And his glory is his grace, and it's his truth. I know this is so crazy to believe, but it's true. It's the best news. It's the, it's the good news, right? And the amazing thing is we know what God is like. I mean, look at the last verse right there, right? No one has ever seen God because God is invisible. And if we saw him in his glory, we'd all die. And yet somehow, even though nobody has seen God, we've seen him. And that contradiction, that tension is exactly what John wants you to focus on. Nobody has seen God in his fullness, and yet God chose to enter our world, and we now behold him, and we see him for who he is. And it's Jesus Christ, God's own unique son. So let me ask you a question again. Is belief even possible today? Is it possible to believe this? I think it is. And I know it is. And you know why? It's not because you, we trust institutions. And it's not because we should trust you know, pastors necessarily or doctors or authorities or any of those things. You know why belief is possible? Because people want to know God. And we see him in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you entered this world uh, through your Son, and you sent your Son to die on our behalf, and you raised him through the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, we pray that for anybody who has not been born again or um, come face to face with your Son, that they would do that, and that your Holy Spirit would compel them and bring them into your family. And Father, we have seen his glory, we have experienced his grace and his truth, and we love you because you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.